to be able to scale, it really does. You do have to have your processes nailed down. You have to have the right people, and that doesn't happen by accident. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, closers, to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have Clay Lehman from Resolute Property Management. Yep. Clay, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, man, this is awesome. I'm stoked to be here, for real. All right, well, let's get into it, man. Where are you from originally, Clay? So I was born and raised in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, Went to Florida State University. Uh, When I graduated, moved over to Jacksonville. Um, You know, my education uh, was accounting, so I went to work for... for, uh, Arthur Anderson, a big accounting firm, moved around a little bit, Orlando, and then ended up in Ocala, Florida, which is where I am now. But it does sound like you were a Floridian through and through. Oh, yeah. Born and raised. Have you ever lived long term anywhere else? Uh, Other than a year, a very, very fun year at the University of Alabama, my freshman year. uh, No, I've lived in Florida my whole life. What did you study at school? Uh, I studied accounting. And uh, I got my master's in accounting information systems. Okay. That sounds like a pretty bold commitment to accounting. How did we get from there to into this dark world of property management? You know, um, so accounting came about, my dad was a CPA and he told me early on, he said, son, you can go from accounting to do anything, but you can't go from anything to do accounting. And I do feel like uh, that I've been fortunate to have that background because as I've learned, that's a struggle a lot of times for um, small business owners is understanding their numbers. Mm. And, I, and honestly, I'm not the greatest numbers guy, which is ironic, you know, with that background. Um, but you know, it has been very helpful. So, you know, when I moved to Ocala, it was to be the controller for Pulte homes. Um, and then I went from there to work for a mortgage lender running their REO department. So it was a more direct real estate experience. So, you know, basically managing their foreclosures. And then, um, in 2009, I started my own uh, asset management company, so managing foreclosures for hedge funds, uh, and then connected to that, we started a real estate brokerage, and that grew into property management, uh, which was really kind of a side gig, hustle, whatever, uh, until about five or six years ago when we really s- decided to invest in it being a business of its own, which is when we started Resolute Property Management. Oh, man, you're moving real fast. We're gonna oh, my go, bad. Let's go back to Pulte. Okay. Pulte. Let's start here. What's the difference between a bookkeeper, a controller, and a CFO? Well, a controller has the coolest name of the three things you've mentioned, okay? So uh, the controller basically runs the accounting department. Um, You know, so they would, the bookkeepers would report to them. My approach to being the controller was really to not do any work. So I didn't want to be the controller. I wanted to be the CFO. So the CFO, to finish your question or to finish the answer to your question is more holistically looking at all of the finances and really looking forward, you know, accountants looking back, you're a scorekeeper. You're looking Mm. at what has happened. Mm. A CFO is looking at what can happen. Mm. And so that's more what I wanted to do. So I was taking the job of controller and having the people that work with me do it. You know, basically the way I always approach my job is I don't want my job. I want my boss's job. I want them to move forward so that I can do their work. And then I assume the people that work for me want my job. So I train them to take that on. And that's always the way I've approached work. So this role of the controller gives you access into the financials, the mm-hmm. model of Pulte, 
What was that stint? How long was that stint for? I was there for three years, 2005 to 2008. What do you take away? Did, did that access into that business model pique your interest? I mean, I, you know, I never wanted to be a builder, but it was amazing training for real estate because I interacted with all aspects of the business. So from, you know, the ins and outs of the accounting, obviously, but also land development, that was fascinating to learn more about, you know, the process of purchasing raw land, developing that land uh, into, you know, the infrastructure that's needed to build houses, then dealing with the, you know, working with the purchasing department and understanding how they price out all the various aspects of the home. Then working with the marketing and sales group to understand better uh, how they attract people into the business and then what, you know, the way that they can incentivize people. The other thing that was interesting to have been there from 2005 to 2008 was the different swing in the market from when I first got there to when I was leaving. When I first got there, um, you know, it was similar to where we are today, which is you, there was no need to incentivize anyone to buy a home. You just you build it and they come. And now, or later on in the stint, it started to get to where it was like, oh, okay, we actually have to work to sell homes, you know? So it was interesting to see that. Yeah. So effectively ground zero for what happened in 08, a direct strike. Absolutely. What was the internal vibe? Was there panic? What was that moment like? Yeah. So I wouldn't say that there was necessarily panic as much as you just started to feel the the tension rise. Um you know, we went from kind of hiring like crazy to then sort of, it, there wasn't a long period of normalization, you know, like I, the, the, the saying of you're either growing or shrinking was really at play. It was almost like we were growing, growing, growing until it was okay. Every 90 days, some people are going to get laid off. And you know, one of my friends said, you know, we don't, we don't work here. We have 90 day renewable contracts because <laughs> it was every 90 days. Mm. And, um, and so it got to be it's definitely a less fun environment to work in, you know, when you're growing and everybody's having fun and we're the greatest place ever and nothing can bring us down. You know, that's one thing. And then when it's your phone rings and you're like, oh, crap, I hope I'm not getting laid off. You know, that, that's a tough vibe. Uh, it's a great organization. You know, they're obviously doing great now. Uh, they were very fair to all, you know, everybody as they were exiting the the business. But really, I went from, you know, from being ground zero with the builder to then at the mortgage lender, it was really ground zero. Um, they ended up doing an American greed on the, the company I went to work for. Um, the founder went to jail for 30 years uh, for a multi-billion dollar fraud, which I had no part of. Well, you clearly have great taste. Tell us <laughs> right. more. Honest to God, when, when, when that company went out of business, I was like, listen, if I'm going to go down for somebody's fraud, uh, it's not, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out of here. I'm starting my own business. But so I went to work for, uh, Taylor Bean and Whitaker in 2008. I was running the REO department. And then in 2009, um, uh, Taylor Bean it was there's Taylor Bean was trying to buy their the the bank that provided their wholesale lending um, that fell through and then the following week um, our offices were raided by Sig Tarp which is the special <laughs> inspector general uh, for the Tarp Fund I don't know if you remember in mm -hmm. you know when they had rolled out the money for the banks and um, so that was on a Monday and by Wednesday we were totally shut down. Did, did, were you in the office by chance? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, I was in the office. So I was on the first floor, and I my office was one of the few on the first floor that had a window. And, and my 
so I'm working and my back's to the window and people kept walking by my office and they're kind of looking and, um, and I'm like, what's going on? And so I, I turned around, and I looked out, uh, the window and there were all these cars lined up along the, the sidewalk. And my only thought was, man, you know, my boss is going to be so ticked because he hated it when people parked there, they were unmarked. I had no idea. Well, then, you know, it come to find out that we had been raided by this organization and, um, they had sidearms, you know, we're a bunch of bankers effectively. And they're coming in, they came in with sidearms and, you know, they had the jackets that said, um, FBI and then SIGTARP down the, down the sleeves. And so we're all Googling what the heck is SIGTARP. And, um, and so anyways, yeah, it turned out that there had been a fraud perpetrated and, um, and they shut us down. Now, sometimes you wind up in circumstances like that and there's shock in other places, you retroactively start piecing some, th mm -hmm. some things together. Well, what was your immediate kind of gut reaction to that? Well, I was definitely, I was surprised. I wouldn't, I, there are definitely things where I'm like, this thing that was just kind of weird now seems like maybe in context, it makes more sense, but I, it never was. I ever thinking, you know, there's some shenanigans going on, you know, um, there are a lot of really good, hardworking people there. Um, and you know, it was, it was very disappointing. It was, I think there was all, there was a sense of shock. There wasn't ever a sense of, Oh, okay. Got it. You know, it was really honestly. I, so I, I ended up staying on with the bankruptcy trustees that came in to unwind, um, the assets. And, um, you know, I, I got a peek behind the curtain a little more as, you know, the case was being built against the, the folks that ended up getting prosecuted. And it was, it was really surprising. I mean, at the end of the day, they were basically, you know, selling their loans to multiple, they were, they were taking loans and saying, okay, you know, you own this loan. So, you know, Fannie Mae would give them money and then, uh, you know, uh, um, U.S. Bank would own the same loan, and mm. so they were. It was, it was a basically a very complicated Ponzi scheme. And when you know the winds shifted, you know the House of Cards came down. Okay, so how long was that stint for in total? I was there for. I was with Taylor Bean for about eleven months, so just just under a year. And then I stayed with the bankruptcy trustees for another year after that. Okay, so maybe a little. PTSD from that experience. Surely there had to be a little bit of baggage just kind of in the moment, but yeah. you pivot. And at this point, is this when you transition into coming to the conclusion that if you're going to work this hard and with this much Absolutely. on the line, you might as well yep. do it for yourself? Yep. So that's when I started um, Resolute Asset Management, which was an asset management firm that uh, worked primarily with hedge funds to manage uh, foreclosed assets nationwide. So we would do everything from, you know, when um, you know foreclosure sale occurred, uh, your first step is typically to do an occupancy inspection all the way through to them, we would manage the closing. So we did everything. It was basically as if, you know, if you owned a home, you know, in Kalamazoo, you know, Michigan or whatever, we would do the steps on behalf of the owner that, that you might do, you know, hire the agent, uh, evaluate for repairs, just all that stuff. So everything from the acquisition to the disposition mm -hmm. to the ongoing management. Exactly. And now your client profile, how does it look different than your client profile at the time, which sounds like it was primarily institutional? It was it was 100% institutional, very limited number of clients, so high exposure to any type of, you know, shift in client, um, you know. Uh, concentration mix. Exactly. So we had a concentration of, of revenue risk. Never really bid us, but could have. So now, you know, we we're managing, you know, around 400 units, probably 220 some odd owners, you know, very few 
that have more than three, four, or five. No institutional clients at this time in Resolute Property Management. And did that just kind of happen, or was that an intention? How did that shift happen? I mean, I wouldn't say it was necessarily intentional. Um, you know, we it's it's such different businesses. I did I so I was very intentional about needing to diversify. So from 2009 till about 2013 or 14, I was like totally a one trick pony. We did asset management. We did it for a handful of clients. Um, and you know, as the foreclosure wins, you know, changed at various times, we'd, we'd have great times and we'd have bad times and there was really nothing to offset that. So I was very intentional in that. I did not want to be subject to that cycle anymore. I wanted to diversify my revenue streams so that I could, you know, weather that and not have to um, had the stress of growing and shrinking. And, um, and so we, you know, did a couple things. One is, you know, we, we have our brokerage and we started working on that growth. And then, you know, we, we implemented or, or rolled out resolute property management as its own entity and approached it from more of a, a corporate business standpoint versus the kind of good old boy, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to manage everything. You know, we, we had a, a property manager that was great and he grew us to about, you know, 80 doors, but he wanted, you know, his way of doing things, everything, you know, he was going to do everything, not really through a team, not and nothing wrong with that. It was fine. Uh, he decided to pursue another opportunity. And it was at that point that I had to decide, am I going to replace the way we were doing things exactly the same? Or do we take it in a different direction? And we decided to take it in a direction that we felt we could scale more. And so what did that look like? So it looked like, um, you know, hiring more for more, more for growth and less. So, so where we were going to have, you know, a property manager, but then we wanted to do sort of more of a departmental approach because we felt like with the property manager controlling everything, um, we just didn't have the room to grow. There was just only so much one person could do. Um, and then it also took on, uh, we had to take on more of a sales and marketing approach. I, I'm, as I mentioned, my background's accounting and operations. So to me at the time, sales and marketing is like, you don't need that, you know, that's, you just do a good job and people hire you. And, and so I learned the hard way that that's not how things work. And so at that, by that time I, I had understood that. And we really, I, I undertook learning sales and marketing, um, you know, that was my primary focus because I didn't need any more to be the operations guy. I had strong operators, you know, we needed sales and marketing and, you know, I, I'm, I like to know, I know I can't know everything and I don't want to limit my business to say, I must be the expert in everything, but I don't like not knowing anything about things. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like I was not going to outsource my sales and marketing until I had a better handle on it. So I undertook you know, listening to podcasts, yours being one of them, um, and reading, I read a lot of the books that you recommended. Um, and then just one of the big things for us was, you know, taking on content marketing and, um, and so creating videos and blogs and frequently, you know, just everything we could do to create content that people might engage with. Um, and, um, and so through that process, what I, I was basically trying to accomplish is I felt like I had a strong operating entity and I needed to have a strong sales and marketing entity to, to equal that. And that's where we've gotten to. Yeah. I don't, the grammar sounds wrong with gotten to, but 
Fair enough. We've arrived. That's where we are. I feel like we have very strong both. One of the things that I'm curious about is what is the unique advantage that you believe you have as a result of the background and previous experiences? You're no longer doing institutional, but surely that knowledge, that disposition, what did you pick up from there that maybe gives you a unique insight or perspective that your competitor may not have? Yeah, I think think that's – you've hit on something very important for us, and that is that we do have a very – corporate approach. Now that, that makes it sound cold or, or, but like an investor really wants to know that the person that's managing what is likely their most valuable asset, um, has a appropriate mindset and ability to report to them what's going on, to manage the money, to not, you know, like when, when complex things happen, we, I would never say we've seen it all. We've seen so much, though, that we know how to respond, and it instills trust. I think that a lot of times what you get um, when you are looking at property managers is people that transitioned out of real estate and um, and maybe don't have uh, background in you know broader corporate accounting, corporate uh, processes. I mean, it just, it's a much more professional approach to property management. I believe that we bring to the table. That's not speaking broadly. I mean, that's, you know, we've been exposed to that, um, through, you know, being a part of NARPM, uh, networking at, you know, these events like this IMN event, you know, uh, participating or listening to, um, you know, podcasts and other material. Um, so I know that like what we're doing isn't unique broadly across the country, but in our area, it's, it provides us a very unique advantage. It makes sense. I mean, you have it even in the name, asset management, Mm -hmm. asset management versus property management. It is kind of a refrain for me. The name of property management is just, it's a little bit underwhelming. It's implicitly reactive as opposed to, you know, wealth creation manager or something along those lines. We just have to be a little careful. And so that's one of the reasons that we did create Resolute Property Management, not to speak in a manner like we want people to understand what we're offering. That's, that was one of the things that I had to learn is that I, Honest to like the, if I'm just being completely transparent, I, when I first started my company, I was really quick to tell people, no, I manage houses nationwide because I didn't want to be seen as just another realtor, just another, just another, whatever. I, I was really worried about how I came across to people. And I think it prevented some of our early growth because people would be like, well, I need somebody to manage you know, my, my property, just, I have a tenant, but Clay doesn't do that. He manages stuff for hedge funds. And, you know, and so I've, I've said, you know, we really need to simplify and make sure that our message is clear, um, and, and not, you know, kind of going over people's heads. Accessibility, relatability makes sense. Yeah. It's enjoyable to hear you describe your venture into sales and marketing, learning that. I think we all can relate to this big lie, the myth that if you build it, they will come. Right. If you create a property management, that the market will just beat down a path to your door. Yeah. It's a a familiar thought. What are the other keys on the upside of the business? You've got the people, you've got the, the process. As you've kind of built this out to give you the margin to pursue growth. That's time. Like you said, it's hard to outsource. I assume you'd sound like you were really leading. What did you need to do to get the business sufficiently stable to give you some margin to have these other pursuits? Yeah, that's definitely something I've put a lot of thought into because, you know, to be able to scale, 
it really does, you do have to have your processes nailed down. You have to have the right people. And that doesn't happen by accident. We've spent a lot of time building out our processes and we use Lead Simple um, to manage our processes. And it's been huge. It's made it really easy to make the next hire. That's the way I always express it is that we want to be able to sit someone down at a computer and with very little training know that they could do their job. We do train. We spend extensive time in training, but we, we at least want to feel like when they log in, you know, that we have provided enough direction through Lead Simple that they can, you know, see what's the next task. Well, I don't really know how to do that. Well, great news. There's a little button that you press and it gives you the instructions and you still don't know. Well, there's a video that's embedded that you can click on that'll show you how to do it. And so by dialing in the processes through Lead Simple, that's allowed us to scale and grow. You know, we've also um, started hiring remote employees. I, you know, we're a couple of years, I'm, I feel like I'm typically a couple of years behind the trends that are going on. And I'm okay with that. I love to see how other people have success and then be able to sort of imitate or mimic that. And so the remote team member um, hiring has been really helpful. Um, you know, that allows us to, to provide a higher level of service. And that was one of the things that we had success with early. So we were overstaffed effectively when we first started to grow. So, I, you know, my, my asset management business was kind of winding down. I had some really strong employees and I said, you know, I, I don't want to make any changes. I don't want to lose these folks. I think they'd be excellent in these new positions. So we moved them over to property management. Well, we were overstaffed, but then we grew so quickly, we blew past that and became understaffed what in what felt like a blink of an eye and so now we're trying to be more deliberate in forecasting our growth and hiring in advance of that need because we don't want to sacrifice our service levels we want to maintain a high service level but to do that you know you can't grow by 50 percent and not also match that with additional staffing has staff placement of the profile of who you're hiring changed at all as a result of this process as you're talking about remote offshore etc has process influenced who you're looking for at all? Absolutely. I, I think, and this is intentional on our part, and I think it's part of what you guys try to do at Lead Simple, but by dialing in our processes, we can, we don't have to hire, I don't, I'm, I don't know how to say it right. I, I don't have to hire as qualified a person because I have the backstop of the processes in place. For example, you know, because a lot of the communication uh, can be automated through Lead Simple. I don't have to worry about how's this person going to write an email to the owner when it's time for them to consider, you know, whether they're going to renew the property or, or uh, w when the tenant maybe has indicated they're going to vacate. We need to know what the owner's intentions are. Well, I don't have to worry about what they're going to say. They're going to say what's exactly in the Lead Simple process. So it allows me to hire. I don't have to worry about, well, does this person have experience or qualifications quite as much as I used to. I love that. That makes sense. And thinking about building out and designing your processes, this is a journey that a lot of folks are trying to go through. Mm -hmm. There's different levels of aspiration and different levels of success. Oftentimes, the entry point is being shown or demoed something that seems compelling. It's exciting. Yeah. It really, you see it and you just have that aha moment that you can't unsee. The execution is where yes. things get hairy. Hundred percent. You've been through this. What did this just journey look like? Well, I can I can tell you that. Um, so I, when I read the book Traction, I felt like they were totally describing my failures as an entrepreneur. I'm reading it. And I'm like, because when I first started, you know, having employees, you know, and I I've been a manager of people since I was like 27 or 28. 
Um, and I started my business when I was what, 34. So I'd been managing people for a while, but I always felt like I was a really good communicator. And so when I started, you know, having employees and they'd say, well, Clay, I didn't really understand what you said there. I'd think, man, why don't they get it? And then the next person said it. And I'm like, well, why don't they get it? What's their problem? And then the next person said, I said, oh, well, maybe I could be the problem. And so when I read stuff like that and, uh, and about like the whole thing where you have a million ideas that you implement 20% of the way and it frustrates you, like that's all describing me. So I tried to implement the system ClickUp. Okay. So I thought it was the coolest thing. I still think it's a great system, but I, I like, I thought, thought it through and I, I like did a presentation for my staff and I felt like, oh man, this thing is perfect. And then a couple weeks later, they're all like, we hate this. This is the worst thing ever. And so then I did the demo with lead simple and I thought, okay, how are we going to not have a similar failure? And it came down to the support we got from the lead simple staff to help us make sure that we didn't have similar kind of false starts. So we worked with Zach extensively, Zach per compass extensively to design our processes, test things. You know, he, he taught me how to use Zapier. Um, and so it was so helpful to have that support. And because we were more thorough in our implementation I think it led to greater success and in a, in a scenario like that, where you're trying to implement something like a, like a, um, a system like lead simple success builds trust, which then builds more success. Mm -hmm. So when I went in with ClickUp, and then it's like, well, let me show you how this works. Oh, that failed. Okay. Well, wait, no, hold on. Let me give me five minutes. I'll be right back. Oh, that failed again. That undermines mm. the trust, mm. you know, from this, from your employee team that's like, man, you're trying to upset what I'm doing already and what you're showing me doesn't even work. So when we came through with Lead Simple, you know, it was really helpful that we had uh, the support to build things out more thoroughly before we were kind of rolling them out. So that it was, it's, a, it's an intimidating thing to take on, um, you know, going through and revamping your processes. But, you know, if you keep the end result in mind, you know, begin with the end in mind, you're making an investment that's going to save you so much time, money, effort. It's just, it's the, the ROI is, you know, off the charts. So Lead Simple does provide pretty aggressive support. It's mm -hmm. beyond just free support. There's paid. It can, it can scale to whatever scale you want. Yep. But there are other technology companies that provide free, great free and, and extensive paid support. From your, from your experience, what is the the utility or the value of working with a vendor that actually had that context as opposed to another technology vendor? Let's say a, an identical tech stack, but with a staff that didn't actually have that property management context. Right. Yeah. That that makes so. Whenever you're trying to work with someone, and this is with any system in any industry, if you're working with a vendor that doesn't know your industry, you're not just teaching them about your processes or talking through your processes. You're also having to talk through industry speak with them and help them to understand how your industry works. The fact that Lead Simple, you know, the team had that industry exposure and new property management backwards and forwards, we're really just talking about the tweaks that we need to make for our systems. It, it makes it a lot easier. And I'm, you know, I would say that's true. I'm sure for anyone that works in property management that can offer implementation, it just, it, to try and do it yourself, it just, 
it's going to lead to a path of pain. So after this failure with ClickUp, you mm-hmm. move over, you do the thing with Lead Simple. What did buy-in look like? I'm always curious about this conversation of the owner has their vision, their dream, their aspiration, that in many cases benefits the company and therefore by extension them. It's not always as obvious without some work, some thought, and some communication what the value prop is for the team member, yeah. the frontline staff that are going to be using it. What did your communication look like in terms of explaining how this was good for them? Yeah, that that was that that's so huge in the success of the implementation. Um, ultimately, if you don't have the buy-in of the people that are going to be the day-to-day frontline workers, you're you're bound to fail. Um, so I started with my operations manager, who is um, by nature a skeptic. Um, you know, it's a it's a healthy skepticism, and it's helpful for me in the context of traction. You know, we have the visionary integrator relationship where she's the one that calls BS on my dumb ideas, you know. And so, yeah, I started with her and kind of going through what do you, you know, let me show you what we can do with this. And then taking her pushback and either, oh, okay, she's right, let me tweak this or let me overcome that objection. But we spent a lot more time working together to then roll it out to the staff. But I think once I had the buy-in of one of the skeptics – happens to be the lead skeptic, but I think if you can just get the buy-in from someone that, you know, the staff sees as maybe a skeptic or someone, because when it's coming from you, especially with my background with them, where I'm Mr. Rah-Rah, this is the coolest thing. Let me drop this on you. Mm -hmm. See you guys later. I'm going to another conference where I can find 10 more Mm -hmm. things to drop on you. Um, You know, they kind of roll their eyes and it's like, oh, here's another one of Clay's flights of fancy, where when you can get the buy-in from that skeptic, it's, you know, they, they, I don't, I don't feel like they don't trust me. But it's like the same old show with me, whereas with her, it's like, oh, okay, this thing is real. It's not, you know, Clay's going to run off and forget about it two weeks from now. Really relatable, really honest. Thank you for that share. I think that getting an internal champion makes so much sense. Somebody that can drive from the front lines. Exactly. The person that's going to pay the price if it doesn't go well. On top of that. So the, the, in terms of the value prop, the benefit for the staff, yeah. what exactly would you communicate? Well, so what we communicated <coughs> was definitely, bless you. So, so what we communicated in terms of a value prop to the staff was just helping them to understand how it would make their job easier and how it would help them you know, relieve some of the stress. I mean, it, you know, there's just no two ways around it. Property management is a very stressful undertaking. And I feel like what we can do through our processes is Improve communication, which is a contributor to stress. So when people don't feel like you're communicating well, whether that's an owner or a tenant, that undermines trust and and increases stress. So by showing how it would improve communication, how it would eliminate certain steps, like especially being able to uh, integrate with Zapier and create some of the rote documents that we have to create as part of our processes, uh, how, you know, we use uh, Google Drive and, and, and uh, Google uh, Workspace. And so that integration um, and demonstrating how much of their job would be made easier, I think, um, that was a huge benefit that we were able to demonstrate for them. Makes sense. Yeah. And see some of the upside for them. So you get things stable, you lean into the sales marketing side of things. Yep. Was that primarily you? Do you have somebody on staff either helping you with sales marketing? Sure. So we initially, it was me. Um, I hired um, somebody locally to help kind of come in as almost a pseudo marketing manager. 
Um, and then we also started working with, so we, we started working with Lead Simple as a CRM years and years ago. And so we've been using um, Lead Simple for our CRM. Uh, we worked with Brian Hughes with um, BizDev Mastermind. Um, and I then hired a business development manager. So initially I'm making all the videos and, you know, we, the, the things we primarily leaned on were making tons and tons of useful content filled, not sales pitchy videos. Never once are we saying, call us or we're saying, here's our expertise. You can have it for free, but oh, by the way, I'm with Resolute Property Management. So then we bring on a business development manager and, um, and then we actually uh, grew to a point where we felt like we needed both a marketing manager and a business development manager. And so now that's where we are today, where we have, you know, somebody that's responsible for uh, content and lead generation. And then on the other side, the business development guy is responsible for bringing them home. Bringing them home mm -hmm. exclusively. They're just handling inbound. Yeah, for the most part. And so we're in the process. One of the um, new hires that we've just brought on that's a remote team member is going to be effectively an inside salesperson. So when the phone rings, he'll take the initial call, work to nurture it into an appointment, which in turn, I hope will relieve enough pressure on the create margin enough for the business development manager where he's doing more uh, outbound stuff. And what kind of lead volume are you, are you dealing with right now? So... That's a great question that I should know the answer to. I just know that we're closing right now uh, between 20 and 30 a month. Um, I, I, As I was coming in, I'm like, man, Jordan's on his numbers. I got to know my numbers. I'm a huge fan of the profit, you know, Marcus Limonis, and he's always like, you got to know your numbers. Totally. I'm like, yeah, I know, like, if I'm making any money. But uh, but anyways, yeah, so, so we're converting. I think we had 42 in July, which was huge month, and then about 20 to 30 a month. Yeah, so you can do the math from there. If yeah. you're closing 30 and you have a 33% close rate, which would be a really strong close rate, mm -hmm. then you're doing 90-plus leads a month. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise I mean, our, our area has grown so quickly. We kind of caught lightning in a bottle a little bit, like the mix of the timing of when we started really pursuing – hardcore, getting our name out there, getting the marketing content really strong, you know, investing in SEO and coupling that with the way that our, our market has grown. It's been, we've been really fortunate. That does sound really aggressive mm -hmm. in terms of churn and sales. What's the state of that in your market? Yeah, it's really like for the last, what, 18 months, you know, we see it on the Facebook groups and everybody's saying, oh man, sales is such a, you know, challenge in our market. And it's been like, oh, that stinks for you. But in the last three or four months, it seems like it's really cropped up in our area. So, you know, we'll probably have four, five, six owners that we talked to, you know, um, where they're considering sales. So our approach has been, it's going to happen. We can't pretend like it's not going to happen. Let's try to capture as much of that as possible. And do you have a brokerage function? We do. Mm -hmm. We do. So it's in-house, not a referral. It's not a referral. No, it's in-house. Well, you know, we have to be careful because we have grown through uh, realtor referrals and we do not give it back. Absolutely. will not step on those toes. And so we've, um, you know, utilized, uh, the function, the tag function in lead simple to, you know, demonstrate that it would came from, you know, so-and-so realtor and we refer it back, but yes, we, we keep it in house and we actually just shifted someone into a, uh, investor relations role, which is a realtor that when somebody says, Hey, I want to sell, I want to buy whatever that's this person, that's all they exist to do. Clay, it sounds like you have really good inertia and momentum right now. When mm -hmm. you think about where things are headed, it's exciting. There's growth. There's a bigger organization. What do you think is going to be called out of you as a leader? And in what ways do you think you'll need to shift and grow to be capable of continuing this to execute with sure. that same trajectory? 
Yeah, I mean, that's really what I feel like my role is now. You know, it's kind of like I've gone through the evolution of like when I started the company, I was still like, you know, the doer. I was still doing the work. And then as we grew, I felt like I was just a shepherd for the employees, bring on the right people, make sure the processes are strong. And now I feel like my role is broader. You know, our organization has grown to where, you know, we have the real estate brokerage, the property management company. We just started a title company. And I'm just trying to keep my eyes forward as the market shifts. What I've loved about real estate and what I tell anybody that wants to get into real estate is it's a great business. You can be successful in any kind of market. You just have to pay attention. You have to be flexible and, and you just have to you know, use your noggin. You just look at what's going on in the marketplace and adjust. And so this is not easy. I, I, and I haven't always been successful at that. I feel like I was I feel like if I had been a little more forward thinking, you know, we would have grown more with institutional. I, mean, I still see institutional being a part of our um, growth when, you know, as because in our in our area, we don't really have a lot of the funds coming in. I think we'll see some of that. I'm also talking to some of the funds that I'd worked with previously about managing stuff in other areas on their behalf. So I see that as a potential area for us. But I feel like if I had been more forward thinking when the SFR trade got started, because a lot of the guys I should say a lot of the people that are moving into the SFR space or have moved in the SFR space came out of trading non-performing loans, which is the REO space. So it's a lot of the same relationships. But now I'm you know, kind of forward, trying to look forward to keep an eye on how is the market going to shift next? And to be honest, I don't know the answer to that yet. You know, I know um, we've been working with some builders to do new construction on mm. behalf of investors. Build to rent. Yep. Doing some build to rent. And I think that still has legs. Uh, you know, but at some point, what's going to be the next thing? And that's what, you know, I feel like my role is. I don't know the answer to that. Um, for us, you know, the title company is, you know, uh, a few months old. Now we started in May. That's grown pretty quickly. Staffing, that's challenging because there's so much demand for title labor. Um, so that's where I'm spending a lot of time is trying to find the people to staff because we've grown so quickly. Um, but that's really, I think it's just more for me and my role for the businesses. It's vision, really keeping an eye on what's coming. What's the Clay Lehman macroeconomic outlook? Mm -hmm. As you think about the vision or the dream or the hope of building an all-weather portfolio, nobody has a crystal ball. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody really knows. But what do you sense? What do you intuit? What are you hedging for in terms of what the macroeconomic trends may look like, let's say, near term? Yeah. So I don't know. That's a deep question. Um, you know, For me, I'm you know, in my mid-40s, not late 40s yet but it's coming. And I'm starting to look at what does retirement look like for me and what happens between now and then. You know, I think that property management's an amazing business, okay? It can be the center of its own ecosystem. You can attract in buyers, you know, that are investors looking to have rental in their portfolio. You can work with the sellers as they exit. You can help with the maintenance and repair of the properties. I mean, it's just this great ecosystem. So I think for now, it's really trying to nurture that and grow that property management business. Um, we're at a place now where we're less focused. I mean, we're still wanting to grow our door count, but it's more getting into those numbers and cleaning up, you know, making sure that everything we're taking on is profitable, understanding our numbers better, you know, cutting the, th the stuff that's kind of the fat, um, you know, kind of getting more 
just more intelligent about our growth, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't say that we've grown like crazy and uh, we'll take on anything. We've definitely learned from, again, you know, uh, some of your podcast guests, some of the other people in the industry that we network with that just, you know, they say, you know, you don't say yes to everything. You'd be really careful about what you take on. But at the same time, it gets, it creeps in. And so we need to look at that. But I see it as really just nurturing the center of the ecosystem, which for us is property management, and then sort of growing the things around it that can be fed, but not just from a revenue standpoint, but from the service that we can provide our owners. I mean, we, we've really built great relationships with the owners and they want to have a broader relationship with us. And, uh, you know, that's where I need to focus our energies on. So you see service expansion and ancillary business units as yep. being where it's at. Absolutely. And which of those business units are you the most excited about? Well, I'm really excited about the title business right now. I mean, I think it's an excellent spot to be in. Um, you know, it's, it fits, you know, you, you started the, the interview by asking how did I end up in sort of the dark area of property management? And I've kind of always joked that that's where we succeed is in the dark corners of real estate because our first success came in foreclosures. You know, nobody really wants to mess around with that now, you know, from a real estate standpoint, uh, you know, there, there aren't a lot of realtors that are like, oh yeah, I just love managing foreclosures. And then in property management, it's been the same thing. It's sort of, you know, not for everybody. Um, title kind of fits into that in that, you know, I'm, I always love a critical path. You know, you got to do A and then B and then C and then D and that's, you know, title work has that element to it. Um, it's also an area where, you know, there are a lot of great title operators out there, but they are at their max. So there's a lot of opportunity that's just ready to be, you know, serviced, if you will. And so I'm excited about that. You know, I don't know what comes next after title. Um, I want to be careful. I don't want, you know, I'm a shiny object person. If I'm not careful, you know, I'll see things. And I'm like, oh, that's the next thing. And I'm going to do that. And there, are, I've got, you know, I'm sitting here talking about the companies that we have that are still going, but there was Resolute Mortgage Services that only lasted two or three months. That was a kind of a failure. And how, did that, was, how did that only go for two or three months? Well, that's probably an under, maybe it was six, but it was meant to be like a, um, like a door knock service, deed and lieu, uh, a foreclosure. Um, you know, we were, we were kind of expanding on that, the asset management business a little bit. And it just was miserable work that we weren't prepared to do. Um, it, it was definitely an undertaking that I did not think all the way through, which I am prone to do. And so, you know, I'm pretty risk averse in terms of like, I don't go out and try and raise a million dollars to, you know, put somebody's money at risk. I don't, you know, put myself in a position where I'm, you know, going to lose a ton of money. And so once I saw the writing on the wall, you know, I just pulled the plug and said, this isn't for us. We need to focus on our core competencies. Hmm. Did you get to the point of actually processing some loans? We had, I mean, we had a couple of things that we were doing on behalf of our clients where, you know, we had some successes where we were able to make contact with the borrowers, get them into a better program. Because that's what I liked, what appealed to me about the business is you're effectively going out to somebody that's, you know, got a delinquent mortgage and you're offering them alternatives versus, you know, to keep them out of foreclosure. So that's either, you know, trying to do a workout or, you know, a deed in lieu of foreclosure, uh, cash for keys. I mean, there's all these different options that you can pursue with somebody. So I was hopeful that we would, you know, make contact and people would have some sense of relief that there's somebody trying to help them. And there were some of those and there were plenty of, you know, get off my lawns type of things. So, you know, it is what it is, but um, we did a couple and it went fine. But at the end of the day, we weren't like, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, very relationship focused. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, I, I, 
individual transactions are important, but only to the degree that they feed the relationship. And if I'm not going to be successful on a transactional level, I don't want to sit there and like pretend something different. I want to raise my hand. I want to say, Hey, I value our relationship too much to continue to do a bad job on your behalf. And, you know, I feel like that's built trust over the years because there've been times or, you know, or I'll call somebody, I, I, we own our mistakes, you know, just all the big things of like, just focusing on relationship. And I felt like I was doing more harm than good, uh, to my relationships with, you know, what we were doing there. So we pulled the plug. You strike me as a really candid person. Where does your candor come from? Were you raised that way? To a large degree, yes. Um, you know, my my dad was a CPA for, you know, with a tax practice for years and years and years in Tallahassee, which is where I grew up. And, you know, I think I saw it uh, modeled through him, but also, you know, just in conversations with his clients he had for a very long time. Uh, you could tell the level of trust that he built. Uh, he always, you know, told me, you know, things should pass the newspaper test. You know, if you... Um, do something, you should feel comfortable waking up and reading about it in the newspaper the next day. Um, so that's always been kind of in the back of my mind. And then I half jokingly say, I'm always honest because I can't keep track of lies. You know, I'm not smart enough to like remember everything I said. So I'll just go ahead and stick with the truth. And then I've just learned through, you know, um, through my various dealings, like, you know, one of our biggest clients in our asset management business, she was, a she is a very tough person. In fact, in our first conversation ever, she told me she wanted to fire me, but couldn't. She was told she couldn't. She had to keep our biz, our 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 uh, company around, and and but grew. We grew that into being their largest vendor. And she always said that she knew that she could pick the phone up, call, and ask, and we would tell her the truth, no matter how much it hurt her or hurt us. We were going to tell the truth, and um, you know that served us well. What's one of the crazier property management stories of things <laughs> you've dealt with with either an owner or a tenant? Well, I'll tell you, in asset management, one of my favorite stories was we had this house in Massachusetts. Um, it was a vacant house, um, but we couldn't do repairs until squirrel mating season was over because some squirrels had taken up residency in the property. And during squirrel mating season, you weren't allowed to do anything. So we had the squirrel playboy mansion under our management uh, was how we referred to it. Um, I swear that it... Anytime you say, okay, I've seen everything, you know, like you find out the next day that you, you spoke too soon. Kind of like a squatter's rights scenario there with the squirrels. Yeah, exactly. Like we couldn't do anything without the squirrels getting their reproductive work done. You so. know, every life experience, Clay, every circumstance kind of add, can, can, I was going to say add or take away, maybe shift the lens of your humanity. Yeah. Being in this business, you have to have thick skin. Mm -hmm. And I've heard people describe certain experiences that they felt maybe kind of changed how they related to certain people, maybe some hardening, some softening. How do you, how has the day-to-day -day of property management and the things that you have to see at time, let's say evictions, et cetera, sure. how has it kind of shifted or informed or changed how you relate to other people? You know, I think you do have to be careful not to become overly skeptical. I think it's healthy to be uh, skeptical, particularly in our business early on, you know, after you know, kind of getting taken advantage of a couple times with folks that provided circumstances that put off their eviction that then turned out not to be wholly accurate, you know, that can really harden you and make you skeptical. The way that we explain things. So we're big on setting expectations. And when we talk to tenants, um, when they sign a lease, 
we want them to know that we are compassionate people. We are compassionate. We have compassion. We give compassion. We also have a legal document with, you know, rights for you and rights for our owner that we are going to protect. We're going to protect you. We're going to protect the owner. And at times that may seem like it comes, um, it's in contrast to compassion. We're going to extend you every bit of compassion we can. Um, but it's going to come within the context of this, you know, of this legal agreement that we're signing. That can, we have to be a little bit tough, but at the same time, you know, the coronavirus pandemic hits and we weren't seeking out, you know, I think we've all, I think everything I've heard echoes that it wasn't nearly as bad in terms of defaults as we expected, but in the defaults we had, we we were seeking, I think we may have been one of the most active property managers with the county and getting their money out to tenants in our area. Mm. So, you know, we don't want someone's circumstances to end poorly for them. We want everybody to have, you know, happy ending and we're going to do everything we can to get there. And at the same time, we're going to protect the you know rights of our owners, just like we're going to protect the rights of our tenants. So, you know, there've been a number of experiences where you could say, okay, see, that's what you get, you know, where you might extend somebody time and then they go and file bankruptcy the next day or, you know, whatever may happen. And that informs what you do, but you can't ever not be compassionate. You can't be, I just don't think you can be successful in life um, approaching things from a totally jaded sense of of self and sense of others um everybody's trying to do the best they can you know it manifests differently and you know from from one person to the next but everybody's just trying to do the best that they can um you know to the degree that we can work with that we will but you know we still have to protect the rights of our counterparties sure yeah i love that that's a great overview i think it is probably Fair to think about the flip side of all that heaviness, which is that the home is a sacred container. You think of to I think about the friends that I have and the life experiences I've had. Stability in the home is such a big deal. Absolutely. And when that's not there during the formative years, it causes a lot of problems that's hard to be overridden through positive self-talk or otherwise. Yep. If you don't feel safe in your home, you does it feel good to be involved in the providing of housing, knowing that if DIY was the only option, there likely and arguably would be fewer people that would choose to provide housing in this market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we enjoy being a part of that process. You know, it's fun when when the people you're running the house to are so excited about, you know, oh, it's their first house. And because you know, that's what a lot of what we'll see in our marketplace will be people that are moving out on their own for the first time. And and it's cool to be a part of that. And we try to to provide to to continue the positive like we want to we want to engage in that positive process that positive feeling you know we want to be associated with it you know just like when you know and and again this may be something i had learned off one of your podcasts is you always want to be asking for those reviews when that great thing has just happened when you just moved in when you know when your owner when you're telling your owner hey we just leased your property we want to participate in that we want to cultivate those positive experiences and so yeah totally it's great you know it's i like to be a part of sort of in my community providing housing Mm. The thing that's more complicated, and I don't know the answer to it, and I you know, would love to engage with others that you might know that are, are finding it is the affordable housing issues. You know, it's um it's really tough. Like I we have a fiduciary responsibility to our owners to pursue max rents, you know, and and that doesn't, you know, I think of it more as like max returns. So maybe it's 
you know, we don't always raise rents if we can keep occupancy high as well. But in this market, you know, rents are going crazy. And I don't know how, what that looks like when when wages aren't keeping pace. Um, and so I'd like to participate more in that. But um, but we feel really lucky to be where we're at. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. That's something that definitely gets me off the couch. The thought, the metaphor that comes to mind there is I'm sure you've he heard people talk about the topic of global warming and mm -hmm. the impact that driving a Prius makes. And the answer is not much to right. actually moving the needle. Does you not maxing rents really move the needle for affordable, affordable housing? Probably not. I mean, mm -hmm. it's fundamentally an inventory issue. Right. What do you see in your market in terms of building supply? What are the impediments standing in the way? What are your overall thoughts on inventory it, as the solution? It's so our, our inventory is historically as you know, thinner than it's ever been. We're less than 30 days of inventory in our marketplace. Um, you know, there's more housing going up, both in the form of single family homes and uh, more planned apartment buildings. But it's still not, it's not going to be, you know, quote unquote affordable. Um, you know, our, our wages are, average wages are increasing. And that's because more jobs are coming in that are a little bit higher paying. But there's still people in our, our marketplace that they're, you know, they don't benefit because the average wage went up. Mm -hmm. Did their singular wage go up? And I, I don't want to come across as though I'm like, out there, you know, fighting the fight, I, I probably should be, you know, doing more, but I just don't know what the answer is because what's going to motivate that investor to come in and say, well, you know, I could build $250,000 houses where I'm going to make, you know, $75,000 a clip, you know, or I could build a $150,000 house where I'm going to make $30,000. Well, every day, you know, they're going to make that decision to build that other house. I, I don't, I'm sure that there's, you know, some way the government gets involved to try and incentivize, but I don't know what that looks like. And I don't even know how successful that is. So yeah, it's a tough question. Well, that certainly is above my pay grade yeah, me as too. well. As well as we're wrapping here, I'd love to hear what is your advice to your former self when you were first starting the business? What's one thing you just would have loved to have grabbed yourself and, and yelled? I would say definitely have a vision. You know, when I started the company, I was motivated by one thing and that was fear. I thought, man, if I don't do this, then what else am I going to do? You know, it's 2009, the economy was, was in the, in the garbage. And so I just, I started the company out of fear and I thought, well, I'll do this for a couple of years and then I'll go get a real job. That was my thought. I, I really wish I had had a broader vision earlier on and, and I wish, or, or I don't like to use that terminology, but but could I go back and do something different? Definitely would have engaged in sales and marketing much earlier. Um, you know, I, I feel fortunate to be, I like meeting people. I'm genuinely interested in other people. I didn't know that was a skill people needed to learn. Like I, I read the um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And my, my dad could have written that book. And just because he's just, he was always genuinely interested in people. And I find I had that same kind of inner or, you know, inner just curiosity. And that's a, I'm very fortunate in that. And I wish I leveraged that more in the beginning to try and grow the business. I was so focused on what I felt like was the appearance of being sophisticated and, you know, like whatever it just, I think it was an impediment. So I would love to have that conversation with, you know, with early clay. 
Relatable. Yeah. Final question of the day, Clay. What is one charity or cause that you really feel strongly about? So um, for us, uh, foster care is really close to our heart. Um, so my um, we, my daughter, I, we, we adopted her out of foster care. Um, she came to live with us when she was six months old. She's eight now. Um, and, you know, we, I guess my, we knew that that was a very challenging system, but we didn't know how broken it was. And, um, and so having that insight now, whenever we have the opportunity to support, like in our area, um, Kid Central is, is, uh, uh, kind of the DCF, um, representative. And then there's a number of charities, like one of our friends does backpacks for foster children, because when they get moved from place to place, they'll be given a garbage bag to put their stuff in. Mm. And so, you know, we you know, my wife and I feel very strongly, um, about adoption and foster care. Um, it's really been, we have had such a great experience with, with Liddy. She's, fits like a puzzle piece into our family. I have three boys and then, and then her and just can't imagine life without her. So for us, it's the, it's, um, you know, supporting foster care and adoption. Beautiful. Thank you yeah, for the share. Appreciate that. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Thank you for the share, brother. Excited sure. to see your journey, your development and your growth. It sounds like you've got a really exciting trajectory. So I can't wait Thanks, to have man. you back on in, in a couple of years here and see where you take it. This has been such an honor. I, I really, I remember, you know, when we were first getting started on this journey, listening to your podcast and just really picking up so many gems. Uh, when you asked me to be on, I was, I was blown away. Thank you. I'm rooting for you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Until next time. All right. Thank you. 